Amen. Good morning, everybody. Oh, you're so lively this morning. This is great. This is really good. Uh, we are back this morning uh, in First Peter again, and we are still uh, in chapter 3, and I survived verse uh, 1 to 7, so thank you. Everybody, I made a joke that we would form a line afterwards, uh, but people didn't know it was a joke and an actual line formed. Um, but you guys were really actually encouraging. The feedback was really encouraging. I think we as a ministry team have just been so uh, excited to see uh, you guys as a congregation just so uh, appreciative of how we're just faithfully trying to teach the Word of God uh, in a time and in a, a phase in Western kind of history where there's a lot of pressure for us to not do that. So uh, thank you all very much. Um, but today's uh, section of the text is a bit more voluminous. We're going to be going through uh, verse 8 to 22. And, and this section of Peter is almost like a bit of a summary of the content of the entire book. And so this morning, we've got a great opportunity to see the heart that Peter has uh, for these churches here. And we can draw out some really practical lessons, I think, for us as a community of faith. And so... Uh, I think that this letter is great because this letter gives us the opportunity to prepare ourselves well to walk through times of hardship and difficulty while holding to Jesus and particularly as we see the culture around us uh, being a bit more resistant to us following Jesus. And so let's just pray together uh, as we dive into this one. Lord, we thank you so much. We love your word. Uh, we see it as something beautiful and holy. And so as we stand before your word this morning, we pray that you would challenge and convict us by your Holy Spirit into life change, Lord. Uh, none of us here this morning want to leave the same uh, as we came in. Uh, we want you to, to speak to our hearts and minds in a way that draws us into Christ-likeness. And so we just know we need you for that this morning. And so we invite you into this place and we surrender to your work in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just start by reading the text for today. We'll start from verse 8 and go to verse 12 to start with. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. So it goes, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." So here Peter is kind of summing up this part of the letter that he's been going through, encouraging the church to be unified, to love one another. And he's reminding them that although that they are foreigners and strangers in this world and that following Jesus might be difficult, living for God in holiness bears blessing. He encourages them to rise above the way of life of the people around them, to repay evil with Good. Peter reinforces this argument by quoting from Psalm 34 here, encouraging these churches to see that God's eyes are upon the righteous and that he's attentive to them as they seek to live a righteous way before him. Let's just continue on from verse 13. It says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? 
But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil." Now here, I believe, is kind of like the meat of the letter uh, of First Peter. There is a lot, I think, that we can draw out from this verse, particularly as we understand, I guess, the, the culture and the climate of the Christians that Peter was writing to in the time. So just as a really quick summary, uh, this letter was written somewhere between 60 and 64 uh, AD. Uh, so Peter actually wrote this letter during the time when Nero was on the throne as emperor of Rome. Uh, and for those of you who know your history, uh, Nero didn't start out too bad. He wasn't too bad in the start, but as time went on, it seems like the power uh, went to his head quite a lot, and he ended up becoming very violent and very malicious as time went on, so much so uh, that he even murdered a lot of members of his own family. He even killed his own mother for getting in his way. So not the most stable guy. In 64 AD, around about the time of this letter, the great fire of Rome broke out in Rome and it destroyed huge parts of the city. And some people actually blamed Nero for starting the fire. That's not a proven point, but regardless, his popularity just started to plummet as the city of Rome burned and shortly afterwards. And so Nero, he's like, I need a good scapegoat for this. And so Christians became the perfect scapegoat uh, for Nero. He officially blamed them for the fires and he persecuted them more ferociously than ever. And it is, it is hard to even mention in a sermon on a Sunday morning when kids could be in the room the barbaric, torturous ways that he killed Christians during his reign. Um, now, scholars aren't exactly sure if this letter was written uh, before or after the Great Fire of Rome and when that uh, even worse stage of persecution started. Uh, but it was around about that time. And so this letter here is either incredible preparation for what was about to come upon the Christian kind of community, or it was really relevant response to the trials that were coming upon them then. And so here, uh, Peter is writing to these Christians, encouraging them to live right, uh, to tell them to be unified together in love for one another and to live righteously in light uh, of what was going on around them and in light of the grace of God. Uh, to be willing to share the gospel of Christ uh, within this context. And then he, he quotes Isaiah here and says, Do not fear them. Do not be frightened. But instead, he says, revere Christ. Reach out to those around you with gentleness and with respect, even in the midst of suffering. Because the reality was that some of those Christians he's writing to would simply suffer for doing good. And I think that that's something that I think we should pause on this morning and really contemplate. Because biblically, it is all right for us to suffer for doing good. Because everyone, absolutely everybody experiences hardship and suffering in their lives. Everyone travels through that. 
The reality of pain and death are just a part of our human experience. Everyone must either die first or watch the people around them die. How's that for a motivational speech, guys? <laughs> Eat your heart out, Tony Robbins. Here we come. We're all going to die. But here Peter is focusing on kind of separate categories of suffering. Suffering for doing good and suffering for doing evil. And we know that people sometimes suffer for doing evil. Uh, when you assault someone, you go to jail, that just feels right to our sense of justice. And we also know that sometimes we just suffer because we live in this fallen and broken world. That's a part of our experience. We all experience that general hardship and suffering that comes from uh, just circumstances in this fallen world of ours. That injured knee, that broken relationship, uh, that lost job, that financial hardship or that sudden sickness. But as Christians... We go through these things differently. We know that Jesus walks with us through these difficulties, through these trying times. We know that according to Scripture, he can work those difficulties together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We know that he can refine us in trials, that he can grow our character, change us to be like him. We can hold on to hope in Jesus more dearly when our hope in the world begins to become more dim as we go through difficulty. And we can trust that hardship does not last for the one that trusts in Jesus. We can lift our eyes off the temporary and set them on the eternal picture that puts those hardships into perspective. But the world out there, the world out there that rejects Jesus does not have a hope like that. The unbelieving or the atheistic or the naturalist mindset only has this one life to hold on to. And if that one life is filled with suffering, then that's it. That's all they have and it is gone and it is lost completely to suffering. And that's why Peter encourages followers of Jesus to be ready to share that hope that we have. Because Christians have a totally different hope to the world around them. And so Peter tells us to be ready, to be prepared, to give an answer to those who ask us about that hope that we have. Because for us, suffering is, is something that we pass through. We walk hand in hand with our Saviour through suffering. But for the lost, it is a very, very dark valley and many, as they pass through that dark valley, realize they have very little to hold on to, little to give them light, and very little to hope for. And Peter, he just seems to understand this so clearly, uh, that the way people of God respond in that hardship, respond in suffering and to evil treatment, is a sort of testimony to the lost. That even as they slander, even as they hate and treat poorly, a shame of conscience can fall upon their minds because the life and the hope of the believer defies their expectations and it points to the reality of Jesus in their lives. And this specific type of suffering really is what Peter is talking about and drawing attention to. He says, if you suffer for doing good, you are blessed. Because the reality is some Christians will suffer for doing good, for living in obedience to Jesus. And some of you this morning, you guys have experienced this yourselves. But I want to encourage you all this morning, it's all right to suffer for doing good from time to time. 
Now, if you're just rude uh, or obnoxious, that doesn't really count. But some people, they, they experience this separate category of suffering or exclusion or slander or insult, maybe losing a job or being looked over or rejected or just treated with animosity because they want to honor Christ and live for him. Um, And guys, this has been part of the Christian experience right from the very beginning. From the moment that Jesus died on that cross and throughout history, Christians have been killed for their faith. Uh, And it still happens today. It happens at alarming rates. Um, There's pretty credible numbers from Lifeway Research and Open Doors that says that still one in seven Christians today experience what's called significant persecution. Uh, That's not us. Our persecution is not significant, but one in seven still do. Uh, And in 2021, an average of 16 Christians were killed every day for their faith. Hundreds and hundreds every month. This is something, uh, this type of suffering for doing good is really what Peter's speaking about here in this letter. But I think a hard truth for us this morning um, will be to trust in faith that what, what Peter is saying is true. That if we suffer for doing what is right, we are blessed. Because if we're honest this morning, there there will be a part of us that will say, yeah, but really? We kind of weigh it up in our minds and we often doubt that the blessing that comes from suffering for doing good does not outweigh the momentary hardship. We, We struggle to balance that out. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul teaches us that the blessing of that, it does outweigh the hardship. But, But if we're all honest, we can really struggle to believe that. But Jesus himself, never shying away from speaking hard truths, prepared his people for this reality. He told his disciples in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Here Jesus is not speaking just to please people but to offer some real comfort. He addressed, uh, he's addressing what, what Peter is addressing in this whole book, kind of repeating the idea that we are not of this world. We are sojourners here, but we have this new birth and this new citizenship in Christ Jesus. And, and Jesus doubles down on this line of thinking. In Matthew 5, 11 to 12, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sometimes when I read these verses, we don't have that severe persecution that people in other countries do, but man, people living in countries where they're severely persecuted, reading these words would be such a comfort to them. I'm so glad that Jesus said this. Now, it isn't the same for us here in Australia as what it was for first century Christians. I mean, living under Nero, we, we don't risk being kind of burned at the stake for holding to our faith. And what we experience here is much more uh, subtle. Our bodies aren't attacked, but uh, what we believe 
and who we are, it is just constantly undermined. It is constantly berated. It is constantly vilified by our culture. And, and that is what we have to contend with here. And I'm sure you're all noticing that it does feel a little bit like the temperature is just kind of rising a little bit. And where once we kind of might have been a bit insulted or a bit mocked or excluded or just seen as strange because of our love for Jesus, it has almost taken this moral turn now where we are suddenly actually seen as evil by the culture around us. Where once if you're a Christian, oh, you're a good Christian person, now we're kind of seen as if we are, there's something morally wrong with us for holding to our faith. I just um, finished uh, last month this great book called Being the Bad Guys by Stephen McAlpine, which looks at kind of the divergence in Western society's values and our Christian values, um, particularly regarding the world's really kind of extreme kind of sexual and reproductive ethics. Uh, really great book. I highly recommend it if you guys are looking for something to read. Um, but the book also just spoke about how the, in the West, the Western values are really founded upon Christian uh, values. Uh, but at those points where now they are diverging and heading in different directions, that's the point where we are really clashing now with uh, society. And as the Western world strives to kind of move into this post-Christian phase, uh, we will not likely be seen as good Christians because we aren't moving with them. Our values are fixed. Our values are steadfast on Jesus. And so our Christianity is often seen as a bit of a problem at best and evil at worst by the secular world around us. And I think that is where suffering for Jesus uh, will really start to hit us in the West, particularly here in Australia. See, as you hold a different uh, value, a different view on what is right and what is wrong, what is sin and what is righteousness of sexuality or gender, the value of life, the importance of faith and ultimate accountability to a creator and ultimate judgment, they are the points where the culture will conflict with us, where they will get agitated and annoyed and hateful of what you believe. See, I know for a fact that some of you guys here this morning have been ostracized and vilified in your workplaces for what you believe, what you do, and importantly, what you won't do. Attitudes are shifting, and although people in some countries would just be so overjoyed to have the level of persecution uh, that we have here, we still need to acknowledge that it is here. It just takes on a very different form for us. Just this week, um, <laughs> the funniest comment, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but council was doing some backburning behind the church just up here, and um, there was heaps of smoke coming from it. And I, somebody that was nearby uh, made a comment to me. He's like, oh, yeah, I saw the, all the fire and I was, yeah, I mean, I thought the church was burning down. I'd be pretty happy to see most churches burn down, uh, but maybe not this one. You guys do some good stuff in the community. And it was just such a funny comment for him to make. And it kind of shows, I think, a bit of an attitude that a lot of people have. You know what? We'd be better off without purging, better off kind of purging Christianity from the West. But you guys, you know, I guess you're all right. It was a very interesting comment to make. I didn't tell him that I was a pastor. But it is. It's, a, it's such a funny time to be a Christian. We're kind of told that we're not really meant to be Christian in the public sphere, but we're also not really allowed to have our own Christian spheres either. Um, we can't really uh, 
have our Christian schools because our Christian schools are seen as evil if they hold to biblical views or doctrines. Uh, Christian hospitals that allow for freedom of conscience for doctors to perform abortions or euthanasia are seen as evil. Uh, there's just such little consideration given that, that these could be the genuine convictions of people holding to their faith. And, and the media won't often posit it that way uh, either. It, it, it's an interesting time to be a Christian. I, in April just this year, it was interesting to watch. I don't know if any of you guys followed it, but there was a, there's a Catholic hospital in Canberra that um, had an inquiry that finished in April. Uh, and the inquiry, the report, I read through some of it, it was scathing of the fact that this hospital didn't offer elective terminations of pregnancy. Um, uh, and it was, the inquiry was finalised in April, uh, and in May, the ACT government passed legislation to forcibly acquire that hospital to take it off of uh, the uh, Catholic Church. So they just stopped negotiations and they just took the hospital. Now, to be fair, I want to be fair, the ACT government has maintained that they did that for reasons of efficiency. They want to require this site for upgrades to keep pace with population growth. And look, that could be true. That could be true. But I personally find the timing incredibly suspicious and the overwhelming way that the government kind of forced their hand by creating a new piece of legislation to make something legal that previously would have been illegal is pretty much unheard of. And the fact they did it so quickly as well. I mean, I worked for government for a while. Government does not work that quickly. <laughs> Honestly. Seriously. And last Sunday, this image, I just saw it. Um, it all just happened so quick. Uh, this image of a crane taking the cross down from that hospital, I think was just this real kind of iconic picture uh, for me. Uh, it, it kind of symbolised this moment in time as Christianity feels like in Australia it's trying to be pushed out of the public sphere and into the fringes. Um, now, as a pastoral team, we don't want to stir up uh, outrage or frustration. You guys have Twitter for that. You guys have... <laughs> You guys have Facebook and ABC News. You're going to get enough kind of outrage. These things may happen, but we have a hope well and truly beyond these circumstances. If things continue on this trajectory and we are vilified for our beliefs and for our love for Jesus, we can still rejoice. And he is always going to still be on the throne. We shouldn't get dragged down. Yeah, amen. We shouldn't get dragged down into angry hate. But as Peter says, we repay evil and insult with blessing. This is what we are called to. Sure, we should and we can stand for righteousness against evil. But we do not play by the world's rules. We live differently. That cross may be taken down, but the followers of Jesus that work in hospitals across this country aren't going anywhere, and we are the true church. And as the values around us in the world change, because they are not anchored to anything solid, we hold fast, we hold to Jesus. And although that may cause suffering for us, in that we can rejoice, because guys, it's, just, it's all right sometimes for us to suffer for doing good. I think another really interesting example of how it affects us kind of differently here in the West is uh, this couple that I read about a little while ago. Their names were Kira and Byron Hordick, and uh, they were denied approval to be foster carers because of their Christian beliefs. Um, so this couple uh, live in WA, uh, and they were not approved by their foster care agency because when they were doing their interview where an assessor does an assessment, um, the assessor asked them a question about... Uh, about uh, sex 
and uh, they said that they believe that the only appropriate sexual uh, relations is between a married man and a married woman. Um, and because of that comment, the agency denied their approval. Uh, eventually, it actually ended up in court, and the judge found that they were discriminated against by the agency uh, because of their genuine religious faith. Uh, but what it really showed is there was such a conflict in values between the person doing the assessment or the agency and the Christian values. There was such a conflict that they didn't believe that these people were able to raise a child. And it's crazy. All this couple wanted to do was take on a kind of a needy, orphaned or disadvantaged child. I mean, there is such an overwhelming need in Australia for foster care. So much so that a lot of kids are just being put in residential care homes because there's not enough families able and willing and approved to take them on. But Byron and Kira just wanted to do good, but they were denied that opportunity because they belonged to Jesus and they were honest about what they believe and how they wanted to live life his way. The thing is, and I think the reality that we need to see is that the Hordics are blessed. Before they were vindicated by the court, even if they weren't vindicated by the court, they are and will be vindicated by Jesus Christ himself. You see, we are blessed when we suffer for his name's sake, and that's the way we need to see it. We do not repay evil with evil, but we live for Jesus, knowing we are blessed when we are treated that way, and we respond like Jesus did, with forgiveness and with grace. Now, the text here uh, goes on uh, from verse 13, and it says this. It says, For Christ also suffered once for all sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built goes on to say, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. In verse 18, Peter goes on to remind us that we can endure because Christ endured. He suffered for the unrighteous, and that suffering brought us reconciliation and reconnection to God. But then Peter dives into, I guess, what happened after Jesus died, making a sort of victory proclamation to imprisoned spirits. And now, uh, this part of the text is a bit of a theological hot potato. Um, and unless you guys want to be here for an additional 57 minutes... I probably don't uh, have the time to do it justice in a sermon uh, this morning. Um, there are some pretty deep theological threads that you can pull on here, uh, exploring how these spirits could have been fallen uh, angelic spirits or Old Testament believers or unbelievers. Some scholars believe that this relates to the Nephilim that are referred to in Genesis, who were later imprisoned for their actions. Um, I did a bit of a deep dive on this again uh, this week, I feel like I haven't even really dived into it since I went to Bible college, but it was interesting. Um, for those theology nerds amongst us this morning, feel free to read through some great commentaries by Wayne Grudem, Edmund Clowney, and Peter Davids. I found those to be really well-rounded, really great. I found them helpful. Um, but I'm just not too sure that there's too much of a practical application uh, in us unpacking all of that today. 
But yeah, feel free to read those in commentaries if you're a bit of a theology nerd. Uh, if nothing else, you will find yourself uh, amazed at their um, big juicy brains. Yuck, that's gross. What a gross... Sorry. What a gross saying. Anyway, ultimately, ultimately though, Peter finishes uh, this uh, section here, this chapter, uh, in verse 21 and 22 by focusing on the salvation that Jesus has brought us. The text kind of likens the water of the flood and the water of baptism as waters to be uh, passed through as we, like Noah's family, are saved by the intervening grace of God on our lives. And he finishes up by declaring that the resurrection of Jesus proves that we are washed, proves that we are cleansed. And now all of you here this morning can have a clear conscience before God. And this, this is our wonderful hope in affliction, a clear conscience before God, a deep knowledge that we are justified and forgiven. And he now sits at the right hand of God with all authorities and powers and angels in submission to him. And so Peter kind of just summarizes this whole argument that he's been making in this book about submissions to authorities in this life by ultimately showing that everything, everything sits in submission to Christ. And guys, that is our assurance. That is what gives us the strength that we need and the hope that we need as foreigners and aliens here as we pass through times of suffering. And so now uh, what we are going to do is just turn, I guess, to some real practical applications, what that might mean for us. Because if you guys are just walking out of here with uh, some extra knowledge that has puffed up your brains, your big juicy brains, sorry, <laughs> rather than built up or encouraged into life change, then we've missed the mark. There has to be something that we take away with us from this uh, as we leave here. And so uh, I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is this, is how do we live in a world that is hostile to us? Because really that's the place that we're currently at. It's a bit more kind of agitated hostility than it is outright persecution. And so how do we live well in this climate? And I think, I think there's a few things that I think that we, that we can take away from this. But one thing, and I think this is one of the most important, is that we need to live lives of beauty here amongst those who do not believe. As we submit to Christ, as we submit to each other, to husbands and to wives and to mothers and fathers, to authorities and governors and bosses and institutions, we have an opportunity to shine a light. We should live lives that point to the hope and to the wonder of Jesus. Guys, we should be the best citizens there are. We should be the best employees, the best husbands and wives, the best students, the best friends, the best neighbors. We should be the most generous. We should be the most joyful because our witness here hinges on our conduct here as foreigners with hope. And as the world starts to push against us, our response to that pushing should actually speak a language of the heart that those who are searching for truth will hear and will see. In his book, um, Being the Bad Guy, Stephen McAlpine kind of says that the response that we need to have if we are seen as the bad guys by the culture around us should be that of our lives. We need to be fearless, we need to be faultless, and we need to be faithful in the presence of opposition. You see, Peter just started this whole section here this morning by encouraging the churches that he is writing to 
to be unified, to be one. You see, our witness in the world is wrapped up in our unity and our love for each other. And Jesus said it like this. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, the quality of our lives, the love that we have and the unity, that will be our witness. We need to do good and we need to repay even insult and evil with blessing. We need to speak about our faith with conviction and with boldness, but also with gentleness and respect. We will not win people to Jesus with divisive, aggressive language. The divisive, aggressive language that the world out there is constantly using. I follow a number of um, like apologetics pages uh, online, and I find some of the content there really, really great. But have you guys just seen how rude... Like just how actually rude and unkind and arrogant and some and condescending some Christians on those pages can be. My wife and I talk about it all the time. It's like honestly, who cares if you're right? Who cares if you're right if you can't communicate with the fruit of the spirit of kindness? If you can't give a response with gentleness and respect, no one's going to be listening to anything that you have to say, no matter how factually correct it might be. It's not too hard for us to reshape a comment that we make and season it with a little bit of grace and kindness. We're to give give our response for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. You see, we're meant to live such good lives that when we are insulted or maligned, our good behavior should cause them to be ashamed. Instead, sometimes they're actually justified in their criticism because of the shameful ways that Christians can communicate. You see, we have the most beautiful message there ever is. The good news is the best, most beautiful news for the world out there. But sometimes what happens is we package that good news with the way that we live our lives. And if they aren't lives of beauty, we will not be able to deliver that message with the heart that it should, guys. We need to have a point of difference in the way that we live. The world needs to see our lives and see that it is different because of that beautiful message. Like Peter says in chapter 2 of this same book, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we living this way? Secondly, we need to understand that suffering is not abnormal. We will go through tough times, but we need to have a deep and rich enough faith to walk through those times trusting in Jesus. I don't want to take too much from Steve Peach's sermon from chapter 4, but in verse 12 of chapter 4, Peter says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If we're living faithfully for Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if we are treated differently because of that. If Christ suffered, we can too. But we hold a powerful hope through suffering that the world does not have. And if we understand that, if we recognize that suffering is just a part of our lives, then, and we don't see it the same way that the world will see it, then we're more likely to respond to it differently. And when we respond to it differently, that will be a witness. Writing to Timothy, Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you guys hear that this morning? 
Is that not confronting? All. And so if our lives are just so similar to the world around us that we aren't mocked from time to time, if we aren't insulted or left out or talked about behind our backs, is that saying something about the lives that we live? Suffering for doing good shouldn't be seen as abnormal. On the contrary, not ever suffering for bearing the name of Jesus really should be seen as abnormal. Because it's all right for us to suffer for doing good. Have you guys noticed that I've repeated that like so many times so you guys don't forget this message? Like Zane, stop, that's enough now. And I do believe that in the coming years as things, uh, maybe there is more pressure on us as Christians who hold to our faith, um, that we need to be a more united community of faith in order to fearlessly and faithfully and faultlessly journey through this together. I really do believe that that will become more important for us as time goes on. Almost finished. Thirdly, I think that we need to understand as well that growth often happens in those places, at the edge of our comfort zones. Fire tests and refines gold, and difficulty does refine our faith. Um, Because if pressure comes upon you, you have an opportunity, an opportunity to grow there. Could I just get a show of hands from just the people in the room? Um, Who here remembers really growing through a time of difficulty in their life, like a really trying, difficult time? Who here remembers growing a lot through that time? Can I just see an honest show of hands? Yeah, there's so many hands up this morning. That is the testimony of so many Christians that I know, so many followers of Jesus, that as they go through difficult times, they cling so much more tightly to Jesus and they let go a little bit of the world as they put their hope more fully on him. It can be a difficult thing, but a really beautiful thing as well. Right at the start of this book, Peter told us that our faith is refined in the fire of trials but results in glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so finally, I think, uh, to do this well, we need to hold an eternal perspective. And I think this is absolutely critical to any discussion on uh, suffering. We can only respond to difficulty and hardship well with an eternal perspective. And I talked about this a lot on my um, Goodness of God sermon that I did on the life of Joseph a little while ago. Uh, So if you missed that one, feel free to check it out on YouTube. Um, But as the worship team just comes up now, I want to just quote one of my favorite quotes regarding this. And I mentioned it in that sermon, but it's by a guy called Craig Blomberg. And I think he just says it so well, I think it's worth repeating. He says, When one considers the lifespan of any human with its finite amount of suffering, however severe, in the presence of eternity, such evil approaches the vanishing point compared with the unending good and glory available to those who accept God's free gift of salvation in Christ. And I think that, guys, this is always going to be key for us. We set our eyes on things above, not on earthly things. And as we do that, we can suffer through hardships. We can do it well. We can repay evil with blessing. We can love when we hate it. We can overlook differences in our churches and be united in love because we look to what is coming and we know and we trust that Christ will set All things right. Because like Peter says in verse 18, Christ suffered once for all sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Guys, we have an assurance that brings us a hope that the world cannot have. 
The world cannot have the hope that we have. And we have the Holy Spirit within us testifying to us that we are sons and daughters of God. He gives us assurance of this, that what is coming far outweighs it all. And so this morning as we leave this place, we should know that it is all right to suffer for doing good because Christ suffered for doing good. And guys, we walk his way and we do not walk the way of the world around us. Let's just pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And though uh, sometimes we read things in it that are tough, uh, that are meaty, that are hard to digest, we thank you that your word is good uh, and that you speak to build us up and to strengthen us uh, for the things that are to come. And so we pray that you would do that work this morning. And Lord, as we sing to you now, as we worship you, may we worship you through all the different circumstances that we are at in our lives. And may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, Tim.